This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. This is Barry Ritholtz, and today I have a very special guest, really somebody who is a legend on Wall Street, Jack Rivkin, uh, best known as a managing director at Lehman Brothers, a CIO at Newberger and Berman, uh, a, a partner at Ideal Labs, and, and now a managing director at Altegris. Jack is really a legend, and, and the way his legend um, formed is he was hired to take Lehman Brothers Research Department, which was literally dead last in the II rankings, just the worst research department on Wall Street, and he was hired to improve that. And he did a lot of things that actually turn out to be quite common today, but back in the day when he was doing this, it was relatively unheard of. He hired lots of women and minorities. People just didn't do that way back when. He also started tracking how people's research report was used by the street, how often people requested a specific analyst report, how much revenue it generated, how much commission dollars it generated, simple, basic quantitative metrics to evaluate um, the research product. And we take all those things for granted today. He was the first guy who did this. So not only did he do a lot of for then, out-of-the-box hiring and outside-of-the-box thinking, he engaged in a lot of off-campus retreats and lots of stuff that were considered touchy-feely back then, and again, fairly common fare today. And over the course of three years, he took Lehman Brothers' research from the worst to the best on Wall Street. It was the number one-ranked research department. For his troubles, he was subsequently fired by Dick Fold and his inner circles of yes-men, as I like to call it. Um, But he was so successful, Jack was so successful in this, that the process, the methodologies, what he did, became the basis of a Harvard Business School case study. For those of you not familiar with Harvard Business School, they teach through a series of case studies, here's how a manager, here's how a CEO, here's how a company addressed a specific problem and solved it. And so... I actually met Jack through a mutual friend. It was at a dinner with the famous Art Cashin of UBS and John Molden, where I met Jack. And it turned out we had a lot of things in common, even though he's got a few um, years and a few gray hairs on me. Uh, we're both fishermen. I ended up introducing Jack to to David Kotak because they're just same age, same you know, same sort of background, same era. They hit it off swimmingly. Jack is now a regular fixture at the Kotak uh, Shadow Fed event, which is every August up in Maine, where a bunch of fund managers and economists go fishing. Um, Jack really fit in very well. But he's a fascinating guy because he then leaves then leaves Lehman Brothers and ends up at Newberger and Berman, where he's CIO and does a phenomenal job there to the point where Lehman Brothers ultimately ends up buying Newberger and Berman. And here's Jack, a guy who was fired um, after doing a great job, ends up working for the same guys who fired him, and gently egresses himself out of Lehman a second time. This this version is voluntary, and it turns out to be quite fortuitous timing because he leaves just before Lehman 
collapses, I want to say two years before everything hit the fan. And so uh, he, he ended up really being one of those situations where it was a fantastic firing and, and did really well for him. But Jack is one of these guys who's just really savvy and down-to-earth. Uh, again, another no-nonsense sort of guy who just tells it like it is. And a mensch. He's a delight to speak with. He's really a charming fellow. I love the fact that he's 70 or 71 and has zero interest in retiring. He loves what he does. Uh, when he was a partner at Ideal Labs, he's still a partner at Ideal Labs, really fascinated by finance, technology, and software, as well as biotech. And, and we briefly talk about you know, printable organs and printable bones and, and things along those lines. It's it's the areas that interest him I find quite fascinating. So I, I thought this conversation was really, really interesting. It's not as much inside baseball as I've threatened for a guy that the average investor may not know who he is. Uh, he's been all over the street. He's got just a phenomenal career, a great track record, and just a deep, deep well of knowledge. So it was a pleasure to sit with him and have him share some of that. So I think I've babbled more than enough, uh, probably a minute longer than my usual babbling. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Jack Rifkin. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Today on the show, I'm thrilled to have my friend Jack Rivkin, a person you may not know who he is. Again, another inside baseball sort of person who people on the street certainly know who he is. His, his Let me just give you a little flavor of his resume because it's quite outstanding. You began your career as, research, uh, as a research analyst back in 1968 at a small firm called Mitchell Hushins. Right. Is that correct? That's absolutely Ev- right. Eventually become head of research there. They get bought by Payne Weber, and you work your way up the ladder of Payne Weber where you become research director, CFO, CEO of the equity trading side, and eventually president of Payne Weber Capital. Then you move over to Lehman Brothers in 1987. There are some other things in the middle, but I'm just doing the highlights. At Lehman Brothers, you famously took them from first, from worst to first. Famous, that, that's it. That's right? it. Yeah. And eventually, your tenure there was the subject of a Harvard Business School case study describing exactly what goes in taking a last-place research firm, turning it to a first-place firm. Uh, you were CIO, Chief Investment Officer, at Newberger Berman. And before that, you were Director of Global Research at Smith Barney. And currently, you're a director at Dale Carnegie Associates and on the Economic Club of New York. Did, did I miss any of the big highlights? I, I, the only thing you missed were I have my most fun is I'm a director of Ideal Lab. Ideal well, Lab. So you Pasadena. do very early stage investments, early stage. pre-venture capital. Yeah, we start with an idea and turn it into a company. There you go. That's, that's about as early stage as it gets. So- You've obviously had a very storied career on Wall Street. You've worked at a lot of major firms. Um, what were your early influences? What actually affected your early approach to investing? Well, I had some very good mentors. 
at Mitchell Hutchins, there were three people that uh, I worked with for a long time, and they made a difference in my life. Don, Don Marin, mm-hmm. who uh, became CEO at, at Payne Weber, and then when they sold to UBS, he took over a private equity operation there. Mm-hmm. Dave Williams, who, when he left uh, Mitchell Hutchins, went to Alliance Capital and built Alliance Capital up was a there right now. through the Alliance Bernstein acquisition. Right, they're and huge Mike today. Johnston, who went to Capital Research and uh, had a long career there as well, they were very strong influences on my early so career. So I-, I left out early. You you're from originally from Oklahoma. That's right. How, how does a guy like you? You went to college at Colorado for Colorado School of Mines, engineering uh, degree in I, metallurgy. I, I went there to actually become a petroleum engineer, but mm-hmm. I really didn't like identifying rocks, so right. I switched <laughs> to metallurgy and got my engineering degree. Realized that I didn't really want to be an engineer. I actually went to work for Procter and Gamble uh-huh. out of out of engineering school, and then went back to business school. So you end up at Harvard Business School? I ended up at Harvard. And And from uh, there? Well, I went to Harvard to become the world's expert in manufacturing. I Mm -hmm. was going to go back and make better soap. Mm -hmm. And I realized that there were other things going on in the world, and one of them was Wall Street. Did, Did we really need better soap? Soap has been pretty good for a while. Well, but you can always make it better. At least that's what they told us right. at PG. New and improved. Right. You can always right. uh, sell more units of uh... – <laughs> all right, so you end up in I en- Wall Street. I end up on Wall Street. And, and I, I got to tell you, you know, growing up in Tulsa, if anyone had told me I'd go to New York, I would have told them they were crazy. Not going to happen. anyone go to that kind of a city? Right. And then if they said, and you're going to work on Wall Street, I would have had to ask what that was. I had no clue. Oh, really? Clue. No had, interest in finance? Never? No, I had no clue. I mean, Tulsa was, the, at that point, the oil capital of the world. Sure. It suddenly moved to Houston. So everyone was kind of focused on that industry. And taking those weird tests that you do in high school, it said, well, maybe you ought to think about being an engineer. So that's what I did. But when I didn't like finding rocks and identifying them, and when I found that there was more to life than it was a great educational background, mm-hmm. but there was more going on out there, I moved on. That's quite quite fascinating. So you work your way through a number of um, a number of big firms. Uh, you've you've certainly seen changes since. So you started in the late '60s, which was pretty much the end. Of the post-war rally. Yes. So you had a 20-year run from 46 to 66. The Dow, I think, started somewhere in the 200s, just about kissed uh, 1,000 in in 1966, a hair under it. And then for the next 16 years, never got back over that level. No, it, it never did. It was an interesting period of time. It was a time where actually doing analytical work and coming up with specific investment decisions actually made a difference because the market wasn't helping you at that time. No wind at your back. You had five major rallies, five major sell-offs. And by the time you were done back in 1982, you were essentially where you started. That's right. So high inflation rates so you could get uh, 10-year treasury yielding 12, 14, 16 percent. And and, and the Fed funds rate, the the peak was 22.3 percent. 
that 22.3% as the Fed funds rate. And that we was had a, in 1981. And we had a whole lot of inflation over that same period. Yeah, we did. We did. That was a, that was a period where you paid a lot of attention to the to the classic deep cyclicals who were involved in commodities and um, some of them made a lot of money. Coming up, we continue our conversation with Jack Rifkin and we discuss how he took the last place research department of Lehman Brothers and made it the best on Wall Street. You're listening to Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Jack Rivkin. He's Chief Investment Officer at Altegris Associates and has a very storied career on Wall Street, worked at uh, in very senior positions, head of research, CFO, Etc. At and a number of large firms, but what you're really—is it fair to say what you're best known for—is the work you did at Lehman Brothers in its heyday? Is that a fair statement? I, I think that's close to a fair statement. It, it it was definitely something unusual that happened there, and we touched a lot of people, and it made a difference. So so let's step back and talk about this. Uh, by the way, I you and I first met. Some years ago, and, and after I we had met, and you're just a very ordinary guy, very humble. Like when one meets Jack Rivkin, one is not does not come away with wow, that guy has an unbelievable resume. It's just oh, what a nice guy. And I just happen to mention it to somebody. Uh, by the way, I met a guy named Jack Rivkin. Jack Rivkin. Do you know who Jack Rifkin is? Yeah, he's this guy. No, no, no. You should go Google Jack Rifkin. So I Google you and up comes the Harvard Business School case study on what you did at Lehman Brothers from, I want to say, 1987 to the 92. early 90s. That's, yeah, right. that's right. So so essentially, at the time, Lehman Brothers was a fifth or sixth um, largest investment bank, maybe even a little smaller than that, with a research department that someone called the a laughing stock of Wall Street. It, not it, well it was. Not highly regarded, essentially last place in every ranking. And so who recruited you to run their research department? Actually a guy named Jeff Lane who mm-hmm. had a an influence on several things later in my life. Oh uh, really? He was CEO at Newberger when I went there as CIO ah. at, at his request. And this was kind of an offer that was hard to refuse. First it was sort of a blank slate. Mm-hmm. I could I could do I could apply everything that I had learned to a something that really needed to be reformed and it truly needed to be reformed and there were incentives put in place to take it up to somewhere in the top five and right. that was our that was really our goal and really it, that five year plan took you about three years to put into effect that was the surprise I was surprised at that as well that we managed to do that in three years. And and so let's talk a little bit about that. How did you end up, what did you do to change the staffing, the culture, and the quality of the work that we're doing? Well, it was fairly easy in the sense that I could make changes to everything. There was nothing that was sacred. And in fact, in the case, they talk about the possibility that we could have actually brought in a Ouija board and fired everybody, and nobody would have known. (laughs) And sometimes people wonder if that's actually what goes on in research departments anyway. Well, the very famous monkey throwing darts at at 
stock that's, pages on the wall. That's absolutely right. Not, not that far off. Yeah. So, so what what changes aside from the wholesale changes from what wasn't working? What did you actually do? It was two things primarily. One was measuring. We measured everything, and we measured it very openly. Whether it was a number of calls an analyst made what their track records were on their stocks, the quality of their written work, all of the contact they had with the sales force, the contact with the clients, all of anything we could measure, we did, and we posted it. We posted it so everybody could see it. Now, analysts are tend to be competitive. So you're posting who makes the most calls, who writes the best report, who writes the most reports, who has the most feedback coming from the sales force, how are they getting rated by the clients, all of those things people saw. No one wanted to be at the bottom of the list. So you created a somewhat competitive environment, but against the background of it was spelled out and we tried to make it as collegial as possible. I instituted a rule that said anytime you were out with a client and you talked about what you were doing and even in your reports, you had to mention two other analysts in the department. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, that started out with people saying, well, why do I do this? I said, number one, someone's going to mention you. You're going to get better known. And mm-hmm. number two, ultimately, you're going to have to find out a reason why you're mentioning an analyst. So it's going to make you a better analyst as well. So so all of these quantitative metrics and this transparency, uh, this is pretty common stuff these days. It wasn't then. So, so that was – you guys were really operating a little outside of the box and shaking things up. Well, and we operated even more outside the box. We used to have off-sites that were bizarre. Mm-hmm. We did strange things, face painting. Uh, we, we had people coming in talking about left brain, right brain. We had people coming in providing sports analogies to how you run a successful – organization. We did a lot with these folks. We put them through a lot of training as well. Even the older analysts, we would we would put them in a group and have someone who was, let's say we had an analyst who was making the most calls. That analyst would talk about, here's what I do, here's how I do it, here's how I get off the phone to make the next call, here's what I concentrate on, etc. We had one of our analysts who was a very good balance sheet person go through with all the other analysts. First, that meant they were recognized Mm -hmm. internally. And secondly, they were conveying information. And other people said, hey, I'm surrounded by some good folks here. And this did not really happen at other Wall Street research firms. It was not happening as much. There was another element that worked for us that was different. We had a fair amount of gender arbitrage, I guess is the way I'd put it. Meaning that you brought in a lot of women. We brought and in most, a lot of women. Most of the street was all male back then. Well, they were male. And and the women, in terms of market share of ranked analysts, we had the highest market share by a lot. Now, why did they come there to work? Because we created an environment where one, they felt that they were recognized. Mm-hmm. Two, that it was totally based on merit. There was no nothing in the way of compensation difference. And we supported. We created an environment that was supported. If they had kids, let's deal with that. If if they need to take a break, time off or deal with time off, office at home, whatever you wanted to do. And because we were measuring everything, we knew people were working or they weren't. It also became a very collegial environment. And that worked. Now, the reason Harvard wrote a case on it is because it applied outside of just a research effort. It was taught in the 
management of service organizations course as so it a became process. a standard for right and i still go up there you know here it is you know it's 20 years later and they're still teaching the course that that's quite fascinating when we continue our conversation we'll discuss how jack actually got fired from lehman brothers despite taking them to the top of the institutional rankings i'm barry ritholtz you're listening to masters in business on bloomberg radio You're listening to Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This is Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Barry Ritholtz. Today we're speaking with Jack Rivkin, who is currently Chief Investment Officer of Altegris Associates, but he has a very storied background and career. He worked as the head of research at Lehman Brothers, the Chief Investment Officer for Newberger and Berman, you were at Smith Barney, you were at a number of places, a very storied um, background and incredibly knowledgeable about how things work in the world of finance. Earlier, we were talking about how you had taken Lehman Brothers back in the 1980s from the worst research department, a laughing stock on Wall Street, to the number one ranked institutional research department. And for your troubles, you were awarded how? You listed every place I had worked. Some people could say, well, he couldn't hold a job. Yeah. <laughs> well, this was an instance where I clearly couldn't hold a job. Those, all those other jobs, you had been recruited away and hired away. That's right. That's you, right. You, this you, one, it was not quite the case there. Three years into it, we were number one in research. I then moved from being head of research to running the whole equity division. Uh-huh. And we were actually doing extremely well. But it happened to be a time when the fixed income markets weren't doing well. If you mm-hmm. go back, that was a period of crisis. SNLs, there were all sure. these kinds of problems. And fixed income, which was the core of Lehman, was not doing quite as well. And we were really kicking it. We were doing extremely well. Right. And I don't think that went over well. And I had a different management style. Mm-hmm. Lehman was a pretty buttoned up. Management right. style, and You're I had casual Fridays and all right. these offsites, all the, uh, and very loosey goosey. Yeah, wait, yeah. Wait, by the way, a lot of the stuff you talked about is pretty standard operating procedure today. Today, in 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 a number of management courses and a number of service oriented industries, but back then it was not. People looked at you a little. Hey, what is this crazy? Yeah, guy who is Jack this crazy doing? guy? And and what is he doing here? Well, what I, what we were doing was producing results. But it was not being done in what I'd call the button-down, this is the way we're going to operate. And the guy running the fixed income operation at that time was a West Point grad. Uh-huh. He had a certain way of doing business. He was totally opposed to casual Fridays. And he mm-hmm. said, you know, I, I just don't believe in wearing dockers into work. <laughs> and I said, well, what's important are the results, not right. Here are the numbers. Wear. That's it. Right. Here's the, here's and the numbers were pretty good. But- I didn't fit. So so who ultimately fired you? Was it Dick Fold or was it somebody yes, else? Yes, well, Dick was in the office. Dick, right. Dick was in, in the meeting. It was <laughs> Dick and Chris Pettit, who was the guy running the fixed income operation right. at that hey, time. Hey, you're making too much money on the equity side, and we don't <laughs> like what you're doing. You got to go. Well, you could see how that it, ultimately it, it worked out for them in the long because I, I, you know, they said, well, we're going to have to make a change here. And I, I said, well... Let's talk a little bit about why. 
And they said, well, we just feel it's necessary. It just is important. They wouldn't go into it. There was no and argument. There was no argument on that. And, and okay, so it was going to happen. That's fine. So it then became, let me <laughs> negotiate the best exit I right. possibly could. And I get maybe because they felt guilty or whatever, it was a pretty good exit. It gave me a lot of flexibility of things to do. And uh, I, I still have lots of friends at Lehman. And of course, I came back involved with Lehman because Newberger. So was you ended up by as Lehman. chief investment officer at Newberger and Berman. So this is 92 you leave Lehman? That's, well, no, 92 is when I, yes, 92 is when I left Lehman. And I was trying to actually, with a guy named Jim Freeman, we were going to actually raise a merchant banking fund. And I went to Sandy Weil to raise some money. And he said, why don't you come over here and help us on the Do research this, uh, side? And, that, and at that and, point, and, they had Smith Barney. Is yes, there, they uh, had Smith Barney. And, and I said, no, I'm raising this fund. And I asked him, I said, well, when are you going to buy Lehman? And he said, oh, they hate me. I hate them. <laughs> it's not going to happen. I said, well... If you ever do, give me a call. There are a couple of people there I'm prepared to shoot for you. Mm-hmm. So that two months <laughs> later, I get a call saying, right. well, we're not buying Lehman, but we're buying the retail division and we're buying the asset management business. Of Smith Barney. Of Smith Barney. Of, of Shearson Lehman. Uh-huh. They, and, and they were adding it to the Smith Barney. So they love the Lehman research. Why don't you come in and get us through? And I said, I'm raising this fund. And to Sandy's credit, he said, okay, you come over here and help us, and I'll give you the money. Really? Now, the money he, he gave was first Travelers Investment Group money and right. then Citigroup Investments. And I I was there during the dot-com era. I, I spent two years on the research side and then moved into the investment group and ran a group of folks doing venture capital and a portfolio myself. And it was during the dot-com era. It was a great time to be there. And I retired from that. In 2001, I tried to retire in 99. They said, no, you got to stick around. But I'd sold everything that I thought I could sell. So there wasn't much left to do. But I stuck around, retired with the intention of spending a lot of time in the venture world. And then I get a call from my friend from the Lehman days, Jeff Lane, who was running Newberger Berman, and said, why don't you come here as CIO? Coming up, we continue our conversation with Jack Rifkin discussing the world's of venture capital investing, managed futures, and hedge funds. You're listening to Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This is Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Barry Ritholtz. Today I'm speaking with Jack Rivkin, who is currently head of research and and principal at Altegris Associates is that correct or chief investment officer You're pretty officer? close yeah chief investment CIO. officer CIO yeah. and earlier we were discussing um, your career you had run the research department at Smith Barney and before that at uh, Lehman Brothers and then eventually became chief investment officer at Newberger and Berman along the way you were pretty active in the venture capital markets as well you were Head of um, uh, VC Capital at Payne Weber, is that right? Yes, I, I started up their merchant banking capital operation. And, and you also are Same a principal thing at Citigroup. At Citigroup, and you're yeah. a principal uh, at Idea Labs. Yes. That does very early stage investing. Talk a little bit about what the world of venture capital is like. Well, the world of venture capital has changed fairly dramatically, but it's primarily driven by Moore's Law. 
If we're doubling processing speeds every 18 months, just think about that. That means in 10 years, whatever you're doing is 64 times faster than it was 10 years previously. And I don't think we can imagine all the things you can do with that. But there are folks out there, primarily on the West Coast and maybe up a little north of here in New York, that's right, who are figuring out things Mm -hmm. to do. And it's exciting. What what about the biotech side? The biotech side, I I think particularly with uh, what we see going on with healthcare costs and whether it's stem cell research or brain research or any of this effort, genomics and the, the opportunities are phenomenal. Just, there. just fascinating. You know, it's changing really, the world. It's really tough to make a bet against human ingenuity. There's so many fascinating new technologies coming out all the time. It, it's hard to keep up with the pace of, of innovation. It, it, what you have to do is find some smart people who un, or are driven and have a little bit of something that relates to management and what they're doing. And you can do wonderful things in the world. And the great thing is we've got another country out there called China, right. billion four hundred million people. My guess is the IQ spread is the same as it is here. So you're talking about an equivalent at the high end of the IQ equal to the whole U.S. population. Right. They're going to get there as well. And so what about all the problems of it's a communist country and they're building these ghost cities and, you know, all the problems that people have been talking about China for the past couple of years? Is that just something they work through? Well, I I don't think you can work through it. I think there will be some elements of disruption there. But the fact is you have a group of very smart people there at one end of that spectrum. And those folks have always had to be entrepreneurs in a communist system. If you're mm-hmm. going to survive in that system and maybe to some extent thrive, you have to become an entrepreneur. It may not be the entrepreneur that we think about, right. but you're having to think about what can I do, what can I make use of that gets me beyond what's happening in a bureaucratic, controlled system. And a big segment of the population does that. So let's talk a little bit about other stuff you've done. In addition to venture capital, there's been a lot of other alternative investments, hedge funds, futures. Let, let's well, talk that, a little bit about sort that. Well, that's sort of my, that's a bit of my new life. Although I go back to having called on A.W. Jones in the early days of one of the first hedge funds that existed. But that's I, Alfred Jones, the essentially the yes, first. he was it. The first hedge fund. Are you going to tell me that you knew Mr. Jones? Is that No, gonna... no. The person I dealt with there was a guy named Tony Healy, who was also a legend as right. well. And uh, they were true hedge funds. They, they were they hedged. Were actually, they, actually... they actually did hedges. They weren't leveraged funds. They were actually making decisions on buying and selling securities and thinking about risk, even right. in those early days. This is back in the, the 60s as well. But coming out of, of New, Newberger, where I actually stayed on the mutual fund board for a long time after having been uh, CIO there, I actually got involved with a couple of private equity firms as what's called an executive advisor. What that mm-hmm. meant is if they found something they were looking at where they thought I might have expertise, I would get involved. And I did get involved very rigorously going back to 2012 in the possible acquisition of Altegris out of an insurance company. Mm-hmm. And I was intrigued had been intrigued to some extent by alternative investments and how liquid alternatives were becoming a part of the program there. 
And I like the people. I like the process. And I thought it would help build some brain cells as well. And I, after the deal was closed, I went in as chairman of the company. We mm-hmm. were looking for a CIO. Really couldn't find someone who could deal as broadly as I would have liked. So I pulled a Dick Cheney. I said, I can do this. <laughs> and and actually, they took a vote. I don't know how close it was, but I ended up as CIO. And it's been a great experience. I think it is an area that is doing some under really interesting things. You have to be careful. And you have to be careful about what strategies at what time, which gets to the concept of managed futures versus long-short equity or long-short fixed income. There's so, a lot of varieties out so there. So we're going way off into the weeds in terms of a little more complex financial product. Let's talk about how the world has evolved over the course of your career. Because you started out, the world was a whole lot simpler. You were an equity analyst in the late 60s. You were looking at balance sheets. This is really Graham and Dodd fundamental research. And now it's the polar opposite at end of the spectrum of complex hedged products, etc. Is it the world has changed so much that that's what drew you there? Or, hey, this looks like something I haven't played in before. Let's have a little fun with this. This is intriguing stuff. Well, it's a combination. It was something that had not been at the core of what I'm doing, but it was absolutely the case that if you look at the right kind of hedge funds, they're doing the fundamental research. They've just got so much information coming at them that they can do things that we couldn't do back in the, the early days here as well. And that intrigued me. That intrigued me, and it also intrigued me that we're moving toward risk as what you ought to be managing as opposed to what are my returns. It's what level of risk am I willing to take here to satisfy whatever goals I have. And those strategies look like they can fit into modifying or accepting an element of risk in a portfolio. Uh, risk, risk has always been with us, the traditional response is a 60-40 or 70-30 portfolio. So you have an anchor of bonds, and when stocks are getting shellacked, like we've seen earlier this year, the bonds uh, typically go the other way. So it takes a little bit of the sting out of the drop. Um, For the average person, is this the sort of thing that uh, makes sense, or are are they better off with a traditional asset allocation model? Or who's the intended client for a sophisticated well i think the client the client can't it's ultimately the end investor Mm -hmm. but it is complex and one has to really think about how you want to allocate among all the asset classes that you've got available here and i think it takes an intermediary it takes someone who's operating as an advisor of some sort who is actually paying attention to risk and what their Mm -hmm. client is saying they want to achieve over the next 20 years and is prepared to spend some time on that and actually incorporate hedged product or uh, to modify the amount of risk that their client is going to be subject to. But for an individual investor to make these decisions around the particularly the liquid product that is out there, mm-hmm. I think you need help. It, it's, it's complicated, sophisticated it is complicated. stuff. And, and before we run out of time, let's just talk a little bit about what sort of stuff you're seeing on the venture side. Because I know you're still active in early stage investing. 
What's out there that's kind of fascinating? Well, this may seem actually old now because it's in the news, but I think 3D printing, bringing 3D printing down to the individual where you get to a device that cost you 200 bucks, and you can print out a lot of different things based on what someone is coming to you. 3D printing. We've, we've also, I'm still involved in some elements around climate change, not climate change specifically, but some of the different ways to create or store energy, moving a little bit into the healthcare area, which I think is such a need. You know, you mentioned 3D printing and healthcare. I saw two fascinating stories on that. One was a group of doctors in Europe that had an inoperable tumor on a relatively young kid, and they were able to take the MRI and CAT scans of this tumor, print it in 3D so they could see how the tumor was interfering with what veins and what arteries and... and repeated practice surgeries in order to get to it. And eventually, they operate on this inoperable tumor and save this boy's life. The other thing, which is astonishing that I was just reading about the other day, is using 3D printing to print biological output. So they could print part of a kidney or print yes, part of a... Yes, they're, they're doing That's it. astonishing, it, astonishing it, it's stuff. It's happening. And I've, I've actually been up to the New York Stem Cell Foundation, and there they're printing bones. But they're printing bones that actually have you know, veins running through them. You're actually... It's not a dead piece of calcium. It's right. an actual bone, a growing bone. A living... A living, a living bone. Thank you, Jack, for spending so much time with us. We've been speaking with Jack Rivkin, Managing Director at Altegris. Be sure and check out our podcast extras where we continue the conversation. You can see that at Bloomberg.com or at iTunes. Check out all of our past conversations or archived at both those locations. Or follow me on Twitter, at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. This is Barry Ritholtz, and this is our Masters in Business weekly series where I find some very smart, influential person whose work and ideas have really dramatically influenced the market uh, or, or society or business over the past few years. And today I'm thrilled to have my friend and fishing buddy, Jack Rivkin, uh, who's now with Altegris. And if you listen to the early part of the show uh, pretty much couldn't hold the job and just kicked around <laughs> Wall Street from Lehman to City to Payne Weber to Newburger and Berman. Eventually, somebody was nice and took him in. And, you know, it's really funny that, that the story I told early on, you know, I just realized exactly John Malden introduced us. That's, who, that's, right. uh, that's how we that's met absolutely at right. a dinner that uh, John yeah. was in town for. And uh, I remember having a conversation. You and I briefly talked about fishing. Yes. I had a conversation. It might have been David Kotak. I said, oh, I met a guy, a very interesting, Jack Rivkin, a fisherman. Oh, you met Jack Rivkin? And uh, yeah, I just told you. Oh, he goes, you know who Jack Rivkin is, right? Some guy. I just, <laughs> no, no, you don't understand. You go. He's the one. Go Google. Uh, so I Google you, and holy cow, look at this. Wow, this guy has worked everywhere. The Harvard Business case study comes up, which is, oh, that's the first time that's ever happened. 
And Kotak is another one who's a huge fisherman. I put you two guys in touch, and, and we ended up— we're we're fishing as much as we can. Ha, it, Not as much as I would like, but as much as we can. It isn't—so every year, Kotak hosts the—it's called the Shadow Federal Reserve um, fishing trip, or informally known as Camp Kotak. And this is up in the wilds of Maine, and it's just God's country. It's as gorgeous an area. Every time I'm sitting in a canoe on a lake there, and you just look around— Gee, this is uh, there's nobody around for miles. You're in the middle of this pristine like I people don't even think that sort of stuff is left anymore. That's right. It's just incredible and a lot of the guys who go there actually work with some of the nature conservancy to keep that land absolutely wild and pristine and there's just they ain't making any more of it and there's less and less of it all the time. It's really quite amazing. So, so that's how we met. That's right. Um, and you do a lot of fly fishing, don't you? I do. My my father put a fly rod in my hand when I was five years old. Really? And now it had a hook with a worm on the hook, right? But Which is it unusual. Was, it was for still flies. a fly rod, right? It was still a fly rod, and and at five, that's what you needed if you were actually going to catch a fish. But from then on, that's what I've done. That's my sport. So it's funny because I was never a fly fisherman. But as a kid, we used to spend our summers upstate New York. And back in the day when there wasn't air conditioning everywhere, I'm old enough to, growing up, where there wasn't central air in everybody's house. So he would work during the week and come up Thursday night and spend the whole weekend with us and then go back down. So it was three-day weekends over the summer. And same thing. I recall getting up at 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning, driving to the Liberty Diner for breakfast, and then... We were on the lake at 6, 6.30, and it was either Swan Lake or one of his other lakes upstate. And f- as a kid, that's what you did. Well, that's it, that's what I did, except it was Lake Spavanaugh and Spring Creek right outside of Tulsa. And uh, we'd get up early. We'd find some place to have breakfast, and then we were on the water. There's, there's nothing like that. And, you know, it's funny because there are always these life lessons to be learned. And if you're fishing— the lesson you learn is patience. Which, patience. Which certainly doesn't hurt as an investor to have. And I'm not a naturally patient person. So that was a little bit of struggle learning to have that. But what what sort of life lessons did you take from Tulsa, Oklahoma? Well, one was that um, you don't learn much when your mouth is open. So I did a lot of listening. Mm-hmm. And uh, my father and actually my grandfather encouraged that. They were both photographers. They made their livings as photographers. Really? So they were, and they were photographing nature, but they were photographing human nature as well, weddings mm-hmm. and you name it. And uh, I used to love going into my father's when he was in the dark room and the smell of hypo and sitting there quietly while he was creating these phenomenal things that they were blank sheets and then suddenly there was a picture there that mm-hmm. was that was what i saw and there was a lot of patience and silence associated that and then when you said something it tended to be a little it bit mattered. more profound yeah i i learned the patience side of things over time it took a while to learn that the the keeping your mouth shut i still don't have that down <laughs> i'm working on it um, so let's talk a little bit about some of the things we didn't get to during sure. the, the broadcast segment. So Dick Fault, 
Yes. Pretty much fired you. Yes. He was in the room. You you politely said, but he was known for sitting in the corner and having his henchmen do his bidding. That wasn't, well, I guess if you need me there, I'll be there. But essentially, it was between you and the head of fixed income. And Dick said, we're a fixed income shop. This guy, Jack, has to go. If it's between the two of you, I'll choose you and he's gone. Right. And and this was a guy that he'd worked with at uh, the old Lehman for lots of years and had they had done a very good job on the fixed income side. Mm-hmm. They had built quite an operation there. And they equities, were one of the biggest fixed income shops they on the were, street. They were. And and commercial paper, that was that was where all of this group that was now running fixed income at Lehman came from. And um, that was sort of the end of it. But I I continued to actually get along with Dick. The, the, the next time I ran into him, I had joined the Economic Club of New York, and I was on the membership committee, mm-hmm. and he applied for membership. Oh, that's funny. And, and so I called him oh, up. Oh, we're so sorry. It was great. I have your no, application no, no. here, but just <laughs> That's not what happened. Shame. I called him up, <laughs> and, and he returned the call. He called back. And I said, Dick, I see you've applied for the Economic Club of New York, and I'm on the membership committee. And I said, my job is to make sure that you can spell economics. <laughs> and he laughed uh-huh. and said, he said, I'll never, I'll never forget how you handled yourself when we made that mistake. That's what he said. Really? That's a very nice yeah, – I mean, was. It, was, it was pretty clear – Look, you know, not everybody figures that out. It it took me till I was, I want to say, mid-40s to learn, hey, when you leave, even if you're leaving on your own terms, how you exit and, and exit gracefully really leaves a taste in people's mouths. And, you know, the past few places I've left, I've actually learned that lesson that I think a lot of people learn much younger than me. But it's it's always nice when someone says something like that and said it was hey, very nice. You were a gentleman, and, and yeah. we appreciate it. It was very nice. And then subsequently, I I was at Newburger, and who comes knocking on the door? But Lehman. Dick, so and Dick it was Fold, a, he was there, and I and again I talked to Dick world. and Joe Gregory and all those guys, and they said, you know, hope you've got no hard feelings. You know, let's let's make a go of this, and uh, obviously. And, you gave the thumbs up to, you know, if you're a vindictive character, you would have submarined his uh, Economics Club of New York membership. Yeah, but that, and you didn't, no, that so wasn't. They yeah, had to know that you were not harboring any ill will at that point. No, it was just one of those things that, that happened. It's, and, it's a small uh, street, isn't it? It is a small street, and it pays. It pays to actually make realize that it's a small street, right. and there's no place to hide. And right. there's always something. That is good about a person. Now, maybe that comes from my Dale Carnegie right. sort of experience. It's your job as, well. as a manager to find the good and bring it out. And of bring it out, even the worst. Character. That's right. That's right. That's and, and Dick Fold was and is. He's still a real gentleman. He mm-hmm. was a tough guy. That's his and, reputation. Yeah, and uh, um, uh, but tougher but than tough. That's uh, right. This is family radio, so I can't use some of those <laughs> phrases. But he had a reputation of really, you know, bare knuckle, no BS. Sort of, you don't want to be on the wrong side of him. No, you did not want to be on the wrong side of him. But uh, frankly, I think with a lot of CEOs, that's the case. It it makes it very difficult to actually have large organizations move forward because there is this fear. There is this mm. fear, and there's also an attitude. You know, I'm CEO, I'm in charge here, I have to make decisions, and I'm going to make them. 
but that's a bottleneck. They lose something. They right. lose something because the people, instead of thinking about what they're doing as the inverted pyramid, where they're mm-hmm. at the bottom and they're supposed to be supporting everybody working for them, mm-hmm. as opposed to at the top telling everybody what to do, I, I think that's part of the problem with what's going on with a lot of companies in the country now. And, and I would tell you that that sort of, you know, when you rule by fear a little bit, and I don't want to say Lehman was ruled by fear, but when you have that reputation of being a tough SOB and no one wants to bring you bad news, you end up surrounded by yes men. So I suspect Lehman could have been saved a year or two before it collapsed and people saw problems coming, but nobody wanted to... Either it wasn't in anybody's interest. If I go and tell Dick this is going to collapse, and in fact, I think the story was some mortgage-backed analyst... And Lehman said, hey, we're sitting on all this paper. It's a disaster. We have to deal with this. And ultimately, he was fired. If you I, go back I and wouldn't, remember the I don't, story. That, that could be apocryphal, yeah. but it could also be very true as well. And I, you, you come to believe your own stuff. Right, and, your own and, PR spin. And, yes, yes. And again, you're surrounding yourself by people who if are People are reinforcing that. That's bad. Then, then you think, we're, we're going to get through this. And historically... Lehman got through some very tough periods previously. You, you could make a years old. That's right. Like that. That's right. So you could you would, make a case that they actually went bankrupt a few times before, mm-hmm. but because of the way they pulled together and somebody bailing them out, whether it was American Express or right. actually in the '98 crisis, the Fed bailed everybody out. Well, you and, mean long-term capital management? Yeah, right. But I think they were one of the smaller exposed um they were i don't think it was potentially fatal to them but it, it was but probably they were be... they were leveraged they were as right. leveraged then as a as a broker dealer as they were when the end finally came as well i think by the time we rolled around to 06 07 because of that last five years the leverage just ran out of control from oh across the board to 06 and yes. and they were you know it was across the board but they were so heavily in the commercial paper and the mortgage back area that they were at ground zero. You know, it wasn't just people misunderstand. People seem to think that Lehman Brothers fell and then all the dominoes went after it. I'm fond of saying, you know, Lehman was the first trailer in the trailer park that the tornado came through. But it was going to take everybody else. It was going to take everybody. Right. It wasn't wasn't but for if we only save Lehman, everything would have been fine. They were all going down. They were all heavily exposed. They were all heavily leveraged. They all had a huge uh, derivative bet on housing, which went sour. Lehman just, it was such a big focus of their business. In fact, when Bear Stearns wobbled, when Bear Stearns had its problem in March of 08, Lehman Brothers immediately got hit afterwards because it didn't take a, a lot of traders a whole lot of brain power to say, hey, who looks the most like Bear? That's right. Who's got a lot of fixed income, who's got a lot of mortgage exposure, and who doesn't have a lot of other bigger departments that could subsidize that if, if need be? And they were the obvious they, answer. They were the obvious ones. And I, I, I don't think that it was realized by Treasury and the Fed of their importance in the short-term, in the commercial paper market right. as well. In the short-term paper. That's right. That's and, right. And once Bear and Lehman were no longer, you lost a huge amount of liquidity that was used to fund corporate America. There's an argument to be made 
hey, why are you rolling over 90-day or six-month paper to fund five- and ten-year obligations? That's a different conversation. Well, that's, that's, that gets to the Fed. That gets to, okay, do I have a put here or not? And right. Is the, is the Fed going to allow this to happen? And that introduces moral hazard. It introduces right. all ty- kinds the, of things. There's well. an argument that the Fed really didn't—and and let's talk about the Fed, but— there's an argument that the Fed really didn't have a lot of jurisdiction over Baron Lehman and Wall Street. They were really supervising Citi and Bank America and Wells Fargo and, and, and all the other depository banks that would go to the discount window to borrow from the Fed. But the Bear Stearns and Merrill Lynch's really weren't banks then. No, they weren't banks, but they were. They were there was they a were shadow, shadow banking yep. at that time as well, and they were they were doing everything and more that the banks were doing, and they were not being watched. Right. And, so they were doing what the banks were doing, but they were doing it with more leverage, yes, and less regulation and less supervision. Right. Well, how could that possibly go wrong? Uh, uh, yeah. That's, you know, that's right. That, I'm sure that <laughs> self-regulation works great. I'm sure that'll be fine. You, you could make a case, though, that if Lehman hadn't gone, would the Fed and would Treasury have had the degrees of freedom that they had to bail people out, to rack, actually put money to work? Did it have to get to It had to get level? bad enough for yes. them to overreact or, or react. Right. So. Yeah, so let let's talk a little bit about the bailouts and about what the Fed's reaction has been. The most of the bailouts we can place at the footstep of Treasury, but you know, the Fed facilitated the bailout of long-term capital management in 98, which uh, Roger Lowenstein very famously said, if only banks had been reintroduced to the concept of bad loans biting them instead of, oh, look, we managed to trade our way out of this. Uh, that was 98. And then we look at um, the bailout of essentially facilitating J.P. Morgan's purchase of Bear Stearns. Right. Without the $29 billion guarantee of the Fed, that theoretically wouldn't have happened. Although my pet thesis is the biggest counterparty exposure to Bear Stearns' derivative book was J.P. Morgan. That's right. And if Ben Bernanke was a better poker player, he could have gone to Jamie Dimon and said— Hey, listen, I know you want $30 billion, but here's what we're going to do. We're not going to give you a dime. And if you're smart, you'll do this because if they blow up, they're going to take you down. And the next time we have this conversation, both of us will be in front of Congress with our right hand raised, and I'll be recounting this conversation. And when we're done, they'll take you off in shackles. Well, but I think the reason he didn't do that, because he he was afraid, this is a supposition, Mm -hmm. that— his job was at risk as well. If Bernanke's. He, if, if Bernanke said, we're not doing this, we're going to let something bad right. happen here. Hey, you guys made a bad loan. It's on you. Yeah. But Oops. who are they going to look to? Who is Congress going to look to? Right and and to the him. Fed is is always and continues to be concerned about who actually has oversight of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And they don't want more oversight. So some of what they do and some of what they've done here is job preservation, in my view. So the Fed doesn't want to be bailing people out because they don't want responsibility for, why are we involved with an insurance company? We're supposed to be regulating banks. Why is the Federal Reserve 
participating in the bailout. You're saying they don't want to do that. They want to stick to their knitting, worry about banks, and, and everybody else can worry about their own thing. Well, I, I, the problem is they can't do that because no matter people look to the Fed, whatever goes wrong financially, it ultimately comes back to the Fed and certainly out of Congress and out of the administration as well. It's not our fault. Mm-hmm. It's because the Fed didn't do the thing that they were supposed right. to do. The Fed didn't pack our parachute correctly, and that's why that's we it. the uh, – So people have been pretty critical of Ben Bernanke and the Federal Reserve in general, but you've been pretty supportive of saying, hey, you guys may not love what was done, but think about the alternative. That's it. It is think about the alternative, and it's think about an unwillingness to take the risk – of the alternative. So what they did, some people don't like, and they wonder if it's actually done any good at all. So, so I let's think get it spe- has. let's get really specific. So, uh, October 08, Congress doesn't pass the TARP program, and the markets have their worst week ever on a on a point basis and a percentage basis, one of the worst weeks ever. And ultimately, the F- Treasury passes TARP. And then the Fed begins a number of liquidity programs to thaw out the frozen credit markets. You know, when you have the head of McDonald's and GE and Ford calling the White House and say, hey, I'm not going to make payroll next month, not because we don't have the cash, but the cash flow is gone. There's, there's, everything is frozen solid. The normal flow of capital is completely disrupted. You got to do something. And who who was going to do it? So it was, the White House calls the Paulson calls Bernanke and said, "Hey, we have real trouble. What can we do to fix this?" And and they have to respond. They, they have, have to no respond. Choice. They have no choice. And and they've made the argument, and it may be valid that they've had no choice all the way along here. That QE was not enough. They had to go to QE two was not enough. They had to go to QE3. And now we're, they do believe now, I think, at least they have until we've had all these problems in Europe. Right. And we can talk about that a little bit Let, as well. Let's talk about that. So so before before we leave the Fed, you know, the complaint is, oh, so now we have QE4 and every time the market has a, Q, a hissy fit and drops, we're not even down 10%. Now we're going to have QE5 and QE6 and QE infinity. Are we on a permanent state of QE. Now, I don't believe that. I don't either. I, I think uh, eventually the Fed just lets these, you know, the average duration is seven years. You just let it roll off. You eventually get money back for the bonds and they turn it over to Treasury and everybody is is happy and goes on their way. So it's not like, how are we going to get out of this? Well, you let seven years go by and you're That's more right. or less out That's of right. That's right. And, and you get out of a lot of it here. And in the meantime some evidence that the economy is doing okay. Not right. doing great, but maybe it's in a period where there's a little more opportunity for self-sustaining. But the Fed is also sitting there truly believing that they're it. It's right. certainly not Congress. Right. Well, that's the other not the factor. administration. That, that's the other thing is when you have a Congress that refuses to do what Congress normally does, which is, uh, look, if 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 this current administration had the same sort of fiscal, not monetary, but fiscal stimulus as the previous administration, this would be a much healthier economy. You'd yes. have 
higher employment, higher wages, lower unemployment, and GDP would probably be a full percent higher than where it was. Oh, it, w- it would be. In you, the meantime, the Fed is having to deal looking at the employment numbers, and the, the employment numbers, to the extent people say they're not good, are driven by the 16 to 24-year-olds. Right. That's where the unemployment is high. You know, 16 to 19, it's 20%. It's pretty high for the 20 to 24-year-olds as well. And and is it really the Fed's responsibility to have a policy that actually allows you to employ teenagers and the undereducated? Or is that somebody else's responsibility? Uh, I, I don't most, think it's the Fed. Most people would say it's Congress's responsibility. Yes. So the next question is, so, so here's the fascinating counterargument. If the Fed did less, then the economy would be worse. We'd slip into a recession. And all the people who are refusing to participate in the normal economic st- stimulus get tossed out of office and a new crop comes in. But instead... The, the Fed is essentially enabling a do-nothing Congress because the repercussions for their do-nothingness is that's, not that's, coming back that's to bite ab- them. That is, that's absolutely right. That monetary stimulus leads to no fiscal activity, and that's the period that we're in. Now, I think in Europe, maybe there's a different experiment going on here. One could make the case that in spite of Draghi saying, We'll do everything we can mm-hmm. do. I think he's saying that. He but certainly he hasn't done it, and right. he hasn't got the tools to do it. And he's calling for both reform and stimulus coming out of the European countries, and he's trying to make that work. So we've got this other experiment that we're watching to say, okay, well, this is what the Fed could have done. Now, Draghi maybe feels more secure in his current job than mm-hmm. the Fed members did. But that's that's a different experiment that's yeah, happening in I, Europe. I look at that, the statement, and I think what he really wants to say is, hey, we need some fiscal stimulus. Yes. But, but I can't say that. So I'm going to call for fiscal stimulus and reform and let people argue about a little of both can't hurt. But in the meantime, uh, you know, Europe, it continues to be weak. Um, you look at the euro, they've, the one thing that they've managed to do over in Europe is actually get the euro to fall. Yes. So we have the dollar at multi-year highs, right. which is good for us as consumers of oil, which is now at multi-year lows. Um, and if you travel abroad, hey, a burger in London is no longer $47. That's And that's not a made-up number. That's the last time I was there. I had a burger somewhere. It was forty-seven dollars because the exchange rate was so awful. So now that's changed a bit. It's changed a bit, and and there are some people. I, I was at a a all day meeting with one of our managers, and it was Chatham House. So I can't really talk about who said this. Chatham but, House rules means you can describe what was said, but you and can't, you can't I, identify the person by you name. Can't identify. You the could person. say a manager who specializes yes. in fixed income, but that's a specific. I, I can issue say I can say a manager who actually pays a lot of attention to, to foreign exchange mm-hmm. believes that ultimately we'll see the euro at one. Parity with the dollar. Yes, dollar yes. for dollar. And, and if, euro... he, if he had to bet over under. Uh-huh. 120 or 80? He'd go 80. He'd go 80. So 
Keep in mind, the euro not too long ago was about a buck forty-seven. Is that yes. about right? And I had a friend who, in the early two thousands, the last time the dollar was crazy strong, was going to Europe and buying Porsches and Ferraris and high-end BMWs and Mercedes, bringing them to the United States, making them U.S. DOT legal. And selling them for a fat profit and still undercutting the dealers by $20,000. Yeah. Because yeah. the exchange rate had gotten that crazy. That's right. To this and, day, and it could. I, I regret not making the pulling the trigger on a BMW Z8, which at the time I couldn't have afforded. This is 15 years ago or, or 12 years Twelve years ago, and it was about seventy grand, and well, now that car is going for about two hundred. This goes a little in the other direction, but the same thing. I I was in Japan on a business trip. Took my wife. The yen was at two forty five. Right, and today. Today, where are we? One oh six. Right. I was going to say half, but it's, yeah. And and what were you looking at back then? Uh, well, my wife was just going shopping every possible place she could. At that point in time, everything just looked so cheap. It was we we had to buy two extra trunks, not just suitcases, trunks to haul back what she bought. And the truth is, we should have bought more. So it's funny because when people should be aware of how currency affects everything, from two thousand and one, when the Fed started cutting rates after nine eleven. Um, to 2007, the dollar lost 41% of its value. If you want to know why oil skyrocketed in the 2000s, yes. food and gold and everything yeah. else, hey, the measuring stick got much smaller. And we, we're here in Manhattan. My old office was on 5th and 44th, and around the corner from us was a Toomey shop, and T-U-M-I, the luggage. Yes, yeah, the luggage. Really high-end, very expensive stuff. The city was just filled with Europeans, and this was the highest producing shop in the country. So I was speaking, I would pop in there, and it was impossible. I was looking for a, a computer case and uh, for a laptop, and I started talking to the manager. And I'm like, so how's business these days? And his answer was, it's insane. He goes, we don't have a big enough warehouse to keep ourselves filled. The Europeans come in. They're buying the big-wheeled Suitcase. He goes. We sell these for twelve hundred dollars a piece. We can't keep them in stock. People are coming in and buying them two and three at a time. The dollar was so cheap to them; it was like sixty percent off to these folks. And then they would take these big suitcases and wheel them over to Bloomingdale's and, and fill them up, up Madison. And they would basically <laughs> take all the stuff and go take it back that's, home. That's ex- that's exactly that's exactly what happened. And that's clearly what my wife did in Japan. And uh, she electronics or clothes or what? No, was she, she was uh, buying. Uh, actually, a lot of antiques, uh-huh. a, a lot of uh, baskets that, that they had, you know, very artistic baskets. She was buying a lot of this stuff that today, it, again, it cost two and a half times what right. it did then, and even a little more because some of these were collector's items. The, as the well. thing that I used to hear about people coming back from Japan with all the time 
was the Nikon, I want to say D7s, is that Yes, the yeah, that's right. And uh, yeah. my wife actually lost one in the back of a cab, left in the trunk of a cab. But we knew people would come back, and it's a $3,000 camera, and they were paying like $600. That's it. And that's just it. Cr- the numbers were so crazy. Oh, it, I'll take it two, was. bring it back. with. It was, uh, and it was also crazy. We went to Hong Kong right. after that, and it was the same thing. What year was this? This, gosh. It, this is before I, I, unification, obviously. Yeah, it was. It was. Very much so. So you do a lot of traveling for, for business or yes, I for do. pleasure or both. both? A little bit of both, and I try to combine it. So where have you been and what parts of the world are really interesting to you as an investor these days? Well, what's interesting, well, I'll start with some of the places I've been. I'm watching what's going on in India with Modi. Right. And I'm, I'm watching also what's going on between India and Pakistan because right. there's a little history with Modi. A little. Yeah, there. <laughs> what, what's amazing is why has, hasn't India become China? Why hasn't India took, take all this intellectual capital they have and amongst the highest educated workforce when it comes to STEM, um, science, oh, technology, engineering, everything. math— and and met, you look at medicine, you look at other, th- and yet they, half the country doesn't have indoor plumbing. They're using half the half the country. Six hundred million people don't have. They're not tied into the grid. They have it, no electricity. Uh, how, how is that? Is that a societal failure? Is that well, it, it's, political? How, how do it's, you part of in it is political. Year, it's right. a, it's a democracy, mm-hmm. and and it's the biggest democracy in the world, and it's a democracy. Down to a provincial level, mm-hmm. the, the the politics are are severe. I think you can blame a lot of it on the British. Uh-huh. They set up a great bureaucratic system, which the Indians have perfected bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. So the efficiency of the system is way down, and frankly, the corruption is very high, mm-hmm. very very high. We, we had two Ideal Lab companies over there. We ultimately sold them both to Indians because as outsiders we couldn't we couldn't deal we couldn't deal with everybody's handout right. to actually get business done there are some laws that say as Americans we're not supposed to do that mm-hmm. even if it's in another country right. and you You're just not allowed. you just couldn't do it but you couldn't you then could not create a business unless you knew how to work the system so so what's it going to take to get India out from out of their own way it it could take someone like Modi because if I went to Gujarat a lot, and we actually set up our manufacturing facility there, mm-hmm. and Gujarat ran like a, a real it ran almost like its own country. Uh-huh. There was efficiency, there was less corruption. I wouldn't say there was no corruption, but there was less corruption, and there was a you know a firm a firm leader who was actually making decisions around what was going on there. The country could move in that direction, but it's it's going to take a long time to get from where they are to where they could be. But you know that stock market has actually been a pretty good stock yeah, market. Yeah, doing as pretty well. well. Modi was here during the last UN session, and he was a rock star. He yeah. gave a, 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 a there was a presentation at Madison Square Garden. It was insane. We saw clips of it. It was like uh, U2 was in town. It was an absolutely a madhouse, you know, Rolling Stones type of show. How, how does a politician 
find themselves in that. We don't see that in the U.S. No, you don't do see it. that. But this was a major change. It was a move away from the whole Gandhi and and the other party, the Congress party, into mm-hmm. something totally different where there's a lot of hope. Well, we recall a president being elected here where there was a lot of hope as well. There is a lot of hope. I think we have a very experienced both politician and manager, and it could make a difference there. But I'm watching that. What I'm interested in, I call it sort of close to home. Mm -hmm. I think you can find investments from Canada to Tierra del Fuego that will take care of your emerging market needs, your energy needs, your actual businesses. If if you want rule of law, you can sort of stay with Canada and, uh, and the U.S. If you want to take some risk, Great things going on in Mexico. We'll see how this election comes out be in Brazil. Could be very and I, I think I think what's happening in Argentina ultimately does get resolved, and it may get resolved in a way where we're not going to see the opportunity to do what happened there on sovereign debt. So, so are you talking about the the social unrest or the hedge fund situation? The the hedge fund situation. That's ultimately got to get squared away. I think it will. And I think we'll get squared away in terms of a change in the rules around sovereign debt. Ha- haven't a lot of the rules already been changed going forward? There like- have there have been some, but you haven't totally gotten to the point where a a rogue investor in sovereign debt can actually cause the kind of grief that we've seen so coming out to, of these. So, for funds. people who may not be tracking this closely. So Argentina has a lot of um, sovereign debt, not not corporate debt, and they went through restructuring. And when you go through restructuring, the creditor committee gets to weigh in on how much of a haircut, how much less they're willing to take. And there's a secondary market where people can go and buy this debt. Hey, listen, this is going to get cut in half. Um, You could wait seven years to get your 50 cents on the dollar. I'll give you 30 cents on the dollar today. And a number of hedge funds did this, some of whom then became members of that creditor committee. And I'm grossly oversimplifying this. And basically said, we're not going to participate in this. We want a full 100 cents on the dollar. And they even managed to attach a warship one of one of yes. the argentinian warships yes. made port somewhere and they show up and serve papers on the captain and said until we get paid this isn't your ship anymore I, which i i don't think is a way to run a process around <laughs> sovereign debt it, it just is not the way that it may make sovereign debt more expensive right than it is it's, now it's not very clean it's not very efficient it, yes and and you you actually paralyze a country right and um, we need to get past that. And I, I th- Argentina's got, you know, energy just running sure. everywhere. And it's a beautiful country. It's got great people. It's always had a ba- or for a long time here has had a bad government. Uh, well, that that you could describe so many countries that yes, way. You, Let, can. you mentioned so. There's two things you you touched on that I wanna. You mentioned that I definitely wanna touch upon in our last ten or so minutes. You mentioned Japan, and that's a country that has all sorts of interesting problems. Yes. And then you mentioned energy, and I want to talk about both of those because I know you have a lot of experience in each area. Japan, debt-ridden society, aging society, terribly low birth rate, almost no immigration, but a phenomenal 
corporate export economy. How, how does that work? And how? What's the end game there? Where, well, what, what the, happens? The, the real question is, what is the end game? And the end game may be driven by demographics as much as anything else. And, so uh, the average age keeps going up. Very few uh, new kids coming in. You know, you think about the baby boom and what that right. did in the United States. This is the opposite of that. This is the opposite. Now, what what Japan has not done is it hasn't taken full advantage of their female population. So they've got workers. They've got workers that mm-hmm. they could actually have something happen with. But I don't meaning, know culturally. Meaning put to work? Or? Yes, yes. That they're, you know, you have, women are talented. And right. they're, the society is just not taking advantage of that. And they may have to. At the same time, you do have technology continuing to move here. So how many people do you actually need? Less and less. That's that, it. That's the, that's that's the it. secular argument for why the labor pool continually shrinks. Yeah, there's a baby boom generation that's 60,000 a day or whatever the number is retires. But on the other hand, globalization, you have people elsewhere willing to work much cheaper, that's whether it. it's Vietnam or Turkey or, or Mexico. And you have, look, in my office, we're less than 10 people. The stuff that we do, we talk about technology. Yeah, it it would have taken. It would have taken 100 people. It would not have, or it would have been so expensive to do, you couldn't. So so we put out a number of different commentaries every month. We put out a, a quarterly conference call for clients. We do a whole series of analytics on all our portfolios, and and we do a regular rebalancing, and every one of those things is essentially you push a button. That's it. And it used to take four guys with green eye shades working for two weeks in the basement of some building, you know, a month to get that out, and now it's eight seconds push a button. And it happens. And uh, that's the only thing that I think could save Japan fraught from what looks like, I don't know how long it's going to take, but it's not going to end well, I don't think. Japan, and, yet, and yet people are willing to lend them money for I 10 know. years at 50 basis points. That's right. That's how right. is that? Po- their, their debt to GDP is approaching 200%. Right. It's twice as bad as ours, almost three times as bad as ours. Uh, and yet their their treasury is much, much lo- so so. If people are still willing, if the marketplace is still willing to lend them money, when when is that going to stop? When is that going to change? I, I don't know. But at some point it has to, or or you're going to see the yen back at 245, and maybe that'll change things. Well, that'll hurt their economy dramatically yeah. if everything becomes more expensive out of them. So let's talk a little bit about energy. Yes. We're, we're in a, at the time we're recording this, oil briefly dipped under $80. Right. And some of this has to do with, let's talk about three things. So we have the strong dollar, obviously a factor. We also have seen supply, I'm sorry, we've seen demand drop, some of its weakness in Europe and weakness in Japan uh, and Asia, but we've also seen the U.S. become more efficient as a consumer, as the world's largest consumer of energy is a factor, and then at the same time, massive discoveries of supply everywhere, whether it's tar sands or shale gas. And it, it's or, around the world. Around, it's, 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 it's not, not just here. It's not, not just here. We're about we have to the be, technology, yeah. but 
it's it's around the world. So I think the supply picture, the combination of what I call conventional hydrocarbon energy combined with the alternative energies, we're we're creating a lot of energy, and I I think it's going to keep pressure on prices here. And we we've got certainly at this point in time, we have a lot of countries that need those revenues, and they're not getting them. So that's Russia, which isn't Russia, a bad thing. Russia is I I think. To the extent we see a financial crisis Mm -hmm. coming out of all this, I don't know, it could be three years or whatever, you you have to look at at Russia and what's going on there and and the revenue requirement that they've got. They can't afford to actually get overly involved in the Ukraine. Right. They need the revenues. High high energy prices are are, are Putin's best friends. We're just seeing a global shift here. And and actually, I think it affects geopolitics dramatically. What What is the real importance of the Middle East if, in fact, we develop all these other sources of Who cares about Iran if oil's fifty dollars a barrel? That's right. They, they have much lower ability to do mischief. That's that's right, it, and that, it, this is this is good thing. It means that maybe they have to compromise more about nuclear or anything else that mm-hmm. that allows them to get back away from the sanctions and be involved in the in the real world. Here, it's a major shift in where the power you'll pardon the pun, where the power resides. And it will change our relationships with the Middle East. It may change our relationships with Israel. It certainly changes our relationships with a lot of the other energy suppliers as we find other sources. So so you mentioned traditional crude oil, traditional energy. We have the tar sands up north. We have hydro fracking in, for natural gas here. We have Liquid using coal to make liquefied natural gas. Am I? What am I forgetting in the um, hydrocarbon space? In, in the hydrocarbon space, I think I think that's it. But but the impact there is not just on energy. I mean, hydrocarbons are a feedstock for a lot of what gets produced around the world, such and as if, 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 plastics. Right. Any, anything plastics. I mean, the Shah right. of Iran once said that. That oil is too precious to be used to power cars. Right, you can use and it to make anything that you can uh, make anything you want with it. And if you're PVC if you're lowering the cost of that feedstock, mm-hmm. in in terms of what you can produce and where you can produce it, this also can lead to a renaissance of where you actually establish your manufacturing, particularly if it's not labor related and more. Mm-hmm what I would call technology-related in, in the way you set up your manufacturing. And if your feedstock, sort of guaranteed feedstock, is lower, let's say, in the U.S. or mm-hmm. lower in Argentina, it makes a difference on you where you're factories, putting your plants. You can build yeah. manufacturing facilities right there. That's right. And that's good for the local economy. And it's good, good for, for the local uh, economy. It's it's a major shift that's taking place here. And, and always as it has, energy actually produces major shifts in power structures as well. You can you can go back to the to the Dutch and, and whale oil or you can mm-hmm. go to coal and and uh, the United Kingdom. Yep. Yeah, I mean it it, it you know, has caused major shifts. We we started seeing this a few years ago and people were not big believers of, you know, the manufacturing renaissance in the United States, the complaint in China is well we don't we can't reliably get electricity and the electricity that comes in 
fluctuates wildly in ampage and voltage. So there's a cost of building uh, a set of electronics to s create a steady output as opposed to these wild swings. You go anywhere in the mid Midwest United States and run a natural gas pipeline or just a natural gas line there, set up electrical cogeneration plant, you have inexhaustible, almost free electricity. That's right. And That's right. so if you're running a uh, heavy consumer of electricity, whether it's a semiconductor fab or a, a heavier industrial manufacturer, it be, is now, once you back out the cost of shipping from, from Asia, the United States has become really cost-competitive. It's, co it's cost-competitive, and, and we still have the rule of law here. Which uh, makes a big makes difference. makes a big difference. As anybody who was trying to do business in Russia can tell you. Yes. You know, someone described the United States as a, um, a huge insurance health insurance company with a standing army attached. <laughs> Russia, on the other hand, is a uh, huge criminal enterprise with a standing army attached. And That's right. Why would you want to go there and, and do business? Uh, last subject before we let you go. So I know you're big into alternative energies and associated technologies. What's interesting in that space these days? Well, we're, we're driving down the cost curve significantly in the classic, uh, classic alternative energies. I know that solar, sounds strange. Solar, wind, wind uh, all of that. I think what's coming to the fore, and I believe this for quite some time, fuel cell technology is now getting down to cost levels where I think it will be a major impact, particularly fuel in the Fuel cell like hydrogen? Fuel, or? fuel cell like hydrogen fuel cell. Mm -hmm. and, and, and if we've got alternative energies and we're, we're starting with water and we're using, using solar energy, let's say, to create hydrogen, mm -hmm. which then is used to turn back into water to right. power that's a car. That's the byproduct. That's ultimately, I think, the direction. I think electric cars, as we're defining them today, is, are interim. And it's we'll a stopgap measure between gasoline and, and hydrogen. And hydrogen. Aren't we 175 or 100 years away from full hydrogen cars, or is it sooner than that? No, I think it's sooner. I think your Japan, that's one thing they're doing. The Japanese auto companies, which mm -hmm. are internally very competitive, are moving down the fuel cell track, and they put in place the infrastructure for fueling on that as Hydrogen well. refueling. Yes. Yes. And we mentioned earlier the falling price of, of oil. Isn't that a threat to traditional things like solar and wind? It is if a threat. It is a threat, but you're, again, technology is working for you there. You're driving Moore's down the cost. law applies to that it, as well. It absolutely does. So the other question is I don't think there's enough alternative energies that are competitive enough that that's making – the price no, of oil drop. No, that's, but at that's a certain not, point... On, on the margin, it's mm -hmm. an element of supply. Mm -hmm. On the margin, it's an element of supply. And if you add you know, fracking to the picture here, mm -hmm. which is major technological breakthrough as well, mm -hmm. the supply picture is just going to overwhelm. I don't care what the growth rates are the, in, the Marcellus, in China. Um, uh, it, it's... People have, have literally said there's 500 years, 300 years of natural gas consumption, and they're still making find after find after they, find. They are. Now, the technology needs to develop. That, that 500 years is not using today's fracking technology, but again, you're moving down a path right. here. Yeah. And, and, the, and the oil companies spend a lot on R&D. 
It's mm-hmm. it's not recognized as much, but they are they are as technologically savvy and users of technology even even as much as you can see out of Silicon Valley around the internet. So, how low can oil go before it puts a crimp in all these alternative energy? Uh, I, I think I think if you saw if you saw as a marker oil down around seventy dollars a barrel. So I not think, that far away. Ten dollars no, away. away. Ten, twelve dollars away. Yeah, yeah. We're not that far and away. And what would that do? Seventy dollar oil, what does that do to solar? What does that do to wind? Well, I think it slows down the adoption, but I'm not so sure it slows down it actually may speed up the technological development the R and D in in alternative energy. You know, we haven't had a huge breakthrough in battery technology, these have all been incremental improvements. Yes. Yes. And I was just reading not too long ago some sort of a gel. I can't remember the metal that underlines it, but it's a metallic gel used for these new batteries. And the storage is the first order of magnitude breakthrough. Now, I don't know what the safety dangers and if it could be commercialized. Yeah, and, and how, how big it can get. There's actually... A lot of technological work going on with lead acid batteries, the really? old lead acid batteries, where you're using nanotechnology for the cathodes and anodes and mm-hmm. some mixture thereof. You can increase the efficiency to the point where they actually may be as competitive as they as you can really? get with lithium as well. The, the the amazing thing is that you can really improve technology and with all these incremental changes, all these iterations. But when you get that big breakthrough, and you know there's one out there that's there coming, yeah. it's going to be such a game changer. Imagine, you know, when, when I used to have this drill, this electric drill with this big heavy battery, and for years it was, you, it was perfectly fine. Yeah, it was a little heavy, and when you're done using it, you plugged it and you had to charge it. When the new lithon, lithium batteries came out, you just, oh, my God, these other things are just ancient technology. So you charge this up. I have this I have this leaf blower that I got at Home Depot. I'm trying to remember the name of it, but it's the Home Depot in-house brand. I charge this thing up. It, you forget about it for a year. It's still fully it's still, charged. It still does. It hasn't lost the charge. It weighs half as much as the old one. So I'm waiting for that next breakthrough that's four times as, as powerful, half the weight, and that's how you it, end it, up it in it. It will happen, and it's happening across the board. It's happening in the medical area. It's happening in, in data just in general. Mm-hmm. It's happening in manufacturing. It's it's just across the board. It makes me just very optimistic in spite of what happens to the market on any given day. Mm-hmm. This, this, is, uh, this is an interesting time to be involved in watching it. Uh, and and maybe with what's going on in medical, I'll get to watch it a lot longer than I might have otherwise. You know, the, la- the last thing I, I want to mention, and it's right on that point. So we go to this conference um, every other year. It's out in California, and it's just a bunch of young college kids showing off each of their new technology ideas and looking for venture investing. And you go through, you spend two days looking at these 19-year-old kids and what comes out of there. And I'm in my 50s now, so I'm, I look at 19-year-olds as kids. And it's impossible to have a negative outlook yes. when you just see this parade of brilliance and the, the ingenuity and the new technologies. 
it looks as if every problem, at least from a technology standpoint, can be solved. Whether India can get the politics in order in order to fix their system or the United States can, can get their health care budget in order, it's not the technology that's the problems anymore. No, it's not. No, it, it's, it's society that's around it's it. It's the society that's around it. But, see, I, I get what you get every two years. I get it every three months when I go to the Idea Lab board meeting mm-hmm. and walk around that big warehouse with all of these companies you know, three people or maybe there's 10 people. You got the sign up above them. This is what they're doing. And you're watching these. And they are kids. Well, everybody's a kid to me now. You're watching these kids with such enthusiasm and such energy tackling a problem. And it's not – they're not saying no. They're saying we're, we're going to figure, we'll figure this out. out. Right. Might not work the first time around, but we'll figure it out. We'll figure See, it out. See, I couldn't do that every three months because it would just make me too bullish. <laughs> I have to have some objectivity, and that sort of stuff I would just, all right, 200% long and forget about everything else. That's so right. I, I can only go every other year, and that that's a, that carries me through. Brings you back into it. Anyway, Jack, thank you so much for spending so much time with us today. Um, you're just a font of information, and as always, it's a pleasure chatting with you. Well, it, it's a pleasure chatting with you, Barry. I always enjoy that. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Um, I'm going to say that again. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. If you're listening to this, you're obviously hearing the podcast. Be sure and check out our other podcasts, which are archived on Bloomberg.com. In theory, we should be up on Apple iTunes any day now. They've been dawdling. I guess they're waiting for for Samsung to put us up first, and then they'll they'll uh, match that. That's my dig at Apple. Despite me owning all Apple products, I can't get our damn podcast up there. Um, follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz, or check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. You're listening to Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.